Welcome to another Dragonlance Saga review episode. It is Misham Dark Ember the 30th. My name is Adam, and today I'm going to give you my review of Stormblade by Nancy Varian Berberick. I'd like to take a moment to thank the members of this YouTube channel and invite you to consider becoming a member by visiting the link in the description below. And you can always pick up Dragonlance game materials using my affiliate links. Now, this is my perspective only, so if yours differs, that's great. Put your thoughts up in the YouTube live chat if you're joining live, or put them in the comments after the fact if you're watching it after the fact. So the ways these things work, if you haven't watched these reviews before, is that I have a pre-written review that I wrote as I was reading the novel. And then afterward, I'll address any of the comments or questions or anything and just sort of riff a little bit on the characters or the situation or whatever. And that's kind of it. So let's dive in, shall we? Now, I had completely forgotten this novel. And I'm sure I read it as a child, but for the life of me, nothing I am reading at the very beginning of this is familiar at all. That being said, I'm really enjoying it. Now, it's set after the Heroes of the Lands liberate the prisoners of Pax Tharkaz and are headed across the Calchas Mountains toward Thorbarden. Now, naturally, this is worrying the dwarves as they, for the most part, don't want any humans, or anyone for that matter, in their halls. Simultaneously, a dwarven smith named Isarn Hammerfell crafted the first King's Blade in 300 years. This is important because the death of the last King, Duncan, and the Hammer of Car because of the last, uh, death of the last king, the Hammer of Keras went missing, and without it, there cannot be a true king of Thorbarden. However, if one of the thanes has the king's blade, they can rule as king regent. So the Hylar and Thewar thanes are furiously searching for it, and the blade went missing after it was constructed. I also like that Verminard is alive, and his dragon Ember is regularly patrolling the lands in Abanasinia. This lines up perfectly with the Advanced Dungeons & Dragons modules, though it doesn't line up with the Chronicles trilogy. So I wonder if readers were confused when they read this. In either case, both Thanes had sent parties searching for the sword as they argue over the coming prisoners. The sword was spotted in possession of a human ranger named Hawk, who is part or Hauk or H-A-U-K Hawk, who is part of a freedom-fighting party making guerrilla attacks on the Red Dragon Army. Hawk is in the town of Longridge, which is controlled by Verminard's agent, Carvath. He enters the town, and two dwarves see his sword and make a wager for it. Hawk wins the wager and ends up secretly giving the sword to a barmaid named Kalita. She soon falls in love with his memory as she searches for him to give the sword back, but he was abducted by, Thewar, uh, by agents of the Thewar Thane. He's being tortured for its whereabouts. I suspect he saw the abduction coming and got rid of the sword to protect it, though I'm not sure if he's aware of the sword's significance, and it's never addressed at all, which is a huge gaping hole. If he didn't know that it was a significant weapon to dwarves, why would he then hide it in the hands of a barmaid? And the fact that Tyoral comes back to the barmaid later saying, hey, he's going to come back for that sword, Leads me to believe that it was a flight of fancy that he gave it away as an apology, but he actually really needs this sword, and so he's going to come back, meaning he's totally ignorant as to the import of the actual sword. In either case, it's really wishy-washy and a strange way to start the book. The other group searching for the sword on behalf of the Hylar Thane is led by Stanek Hammerfell. He's, his partner, Kyan Redaxe, was murdered, and his human mage, Piper, is waiting for him to leave the town. He comes across a kender named Lavim Springtoe, who gets into trouble, and Stanek helps him out of it. 
The elf ranger that was with Hawk, named Tyoral, finds Kalida and asks her to hold on to the sword for when Hawk comes looking for it again, but they are attacked by Draconians. And this is when the whole good guy group comes together between Stanek, Lavim, Kalida, and Tyoral. Stanek leads this, uh, tells the story of the sword after Kalida, uh, after seeing Kalida with it and plans to claim it at any cost, surreptitiously if he has to. As Stanek plans to de uh, steal the sword and have Piper teleport them both to Thorbarden with it, Piper is actively being tortured by the Daywars agents. The villains contact, or the Thewars agents, the villains contact Realgar, the uh, Thewar Thane, letting him know what's going on, and they plan to torture and kill Piper after the call. Pi after the call, like it's a phone call or something. Um, Piper uses his last bit of strength to teleport himself to near where he was supposed to meet Stanek. He's discovered by Kalita, who calls everyone to her, and Piper slowly dies. But his flute has a spell that traps his soul. So the first person to use the flute would call Piper's ghost to him. Stanek builds a cairn and mourns his friend and convinces everyone to travel to Thorbarden. However, Tyoral wants to stop at his ranger group first, as it's nearby. The Black Dragon Dark Knight is ordered by Verminard to be Realgar's mount and help him claim the sword and ultimately rule Thorbarden as Verminard wants it as his forward base. The human refugees are accepted into Thorbarden and Realgar is furious. He's ready to reclaim the kingdom and overthrow the ruling um, Thanes as soon as he gets the sword. I mean, totally disbanding the entire Council of Thanes is his plan. So, uh, little does Realgar know that Verminard doesn't care about him at all and will take the kingdom over once the Council of Thanes has been dissolved. So Realgar's agents track the heroes and capture Stanek, who leaves the flute in between rocks. He's tortured in a nearby cave. Lavim, and the Kender, goes searching for Stanek and finds the flute. He plays the tune and Piper's ghost tells him about Stanek and the Thiwar dwarves that have abducted him. Lavim returns to the heroes who entered the cave to find Stanek, and Lavim uses the flute's magic to create a stinking cloud, saving Stanek, though he will never use his broken hand again after the torture. This is such a fun read, and the author is doing an amazing job differentiating between the character's motivations and actions. You really feel the individual characters coming through on both the good and bad sides, and I really do appreciate that. As Tyoral goes after the dwarf that tortured Stanek, he leaves the cave to see the dwarf's corpse with an arrow in it. Finn's arrow. Finn is the leader of the um, ranger group that Tyrol is a part of. So Finn and his remaining rangers greet their friend and learn of Hawk's capture. They decide to stay and heal Stanek as Lavim goes wandering where, uh, with Piper in his mind. Verminard meets with Dark Knight in the skies above, and Ember starts a wildfire that rages toward Thorbarden. Dark Knight then collects Aegis, uh, one of the Thewar mages that was torturing um, Stanek, and attacks the heroes as they flee the wildfire. Kalida ends up being captured by the dragon, but Stanek pulls himself up on the dragon's back with his one good hand in order to protect her and throws Aegis to his doom. Uh, the dragon takes his two prizes to Realgar and Thorbarden, and Realgar claims the sword. Hawk is saved by a mad Isarn, the guy who actually created the sword, who was driven mad afterward, who takes him to Stanek and Kalida. Meanwhile, the remaining heroes are fleeing from the wildfire, and the Kender uses the magic of the flute to teleport them into a swamp, which is also burning. But it is days closer to Thorbarden, so it's kind of a net positive. 
Hornfell in the Dwarven Kingdom is making friends with Tannis Half-Elven and Goldmoon, then leaves to watch the wildfire that is approaching. He's met there by Rilgar, who attacks with Stormblade. Hawk, Stanek, and Kalita stay with the Sarn as he dies and search for a way out, ending up where Hornfell is being attacked. They help him escape the first assassination wave, and as Rilgar plans the next wave, they get geared up for their last stand. This is an intense end, but the narrative leaps forward and back between events within the same group so much at times, it feels like the book was written out of order and just left that way. It's a bit jumbled, but only in this last third, which makes it really odd. Just before Rilgar attacks again, Lavim comes through the North Gatehouse, followed shortly by Tyoral, Finn, and the other rangers, just in time for the massive fight. Now, this is a huge problem, because an entire North Gate was crushed, which is why the um, prisoners from Pax Tharkas had to go all the way to the South Gate, because the North Gate didn't exist anymore. They even mention it in this book that it was ruined. And yet, everyone can just climb through the window of the gatehouse to get into Thorbarden? Why didn't everyone else do that? What? It doesn't make any sense. There's a lot in this book that does not hold up to scrutiny, so put a pin in it. But I'm kind of forgiving it because I'm enjoying reading it. All right, so as Nice tasks Sturm, Karaman, and Tannis to guard Thorbarden from the usurpers, he heads to find Hornfell, unaware of the dire situation that he's in. Now, that battle is brutal. Kalita is dropped, but she survives. Tyoral dying, and Rilgar is single-handedly fighting Hornfell with the black, when the Black Dragon casts darkness and fear. As Rilgar and Hornfell are fighting to the death, a dying Tyoral allows Piper's ghost to guide his aim, and they kill the Black Dragon, dropping the spells. Hornfell struggles and kicks Rilgar, 300 style, out of the gate over a cliff to his death, grabbing Stormblade as it falls at the last minute. We then cut a few days later as Lavim is told where the Hammer of Karis is, and they all gather for Tyrol's funeral. At the end, Lavim tells Hornfell that the Hammer is in Duncan's tomb, and the heroes all agree to go find it. This is in stark contrast to both the modules and the novels. It was clearly noted that the companions found the Hammer, so why did the author end this novel this way? What happened to the heroes that tried to find the Hammer from this book? We know that while the companions were in Thorbarden, Tasselhoff and Flint found the hammer, and with Verminard still alive, he sneaks into Thorbarden and confronts the companions in the module. So it doesn't make any sense as an ending, other than it being a happy and hopeful one. Now, I do look forward to reading The Gates of Thorbarden, which is the sequel to this, though I don't think it references these heroes at all. All in all, I really enjoyed this novel and only remembered the last third of it from my first reading. I would highly recommend it to any Dragonlance or Dwarf fan as it presents the political difficulties of Thorbarden in a very interesting and succinct way. All right, Jason, thanks for tuning in live. How you doing? Uh, you felt the timeline was off with Dragons of On Twilight. It's, it's not off. The timeline matched up perfectly. It's just it included aspects of the modules which were not in the novel, i.e., the Heroes of the Lance not actually killing Verminard or Ember at all. They thought they killed him, but then they went into the Thorbarden, and it was the Daywar and Thiwar dwarves that were working with the Red Dragon army that allowed Verminard to sneak in and actually attack the heroes while they were in Thorbarden. And so that's when Verminard actually dies. But that happens later, and so 
the the timeline is a mixture of Dragonlance Chronicles and the Dragonlance Advanced Dungeons and Dragons modules. That's where it gets confusing. Malcolm, how you doing? Um, Katarina, you love this book. It's a fun one. Uh, not the best structurally, but super enjoyable. You put the you put your finger right on it. This has real structural problems with the writing. It jumps forward. And then you feel like you missed something, so you go back to try to read where you missed, realizing you didn't miss anything, getting all confused, and then later, the characters that jumped forward cover the ground that you thought you had missed in the first place. It's a weird narrative like uh, technique. It doesn't really work in a novel like this, when the whole two-thirds first of the novel don't do that. So it is very much like someone else finished the novel for her, or she just completely changed her writing style in the last third. In either way, it's offsetting or off-putting. So in the modules, isn't the hammer uh, in Skullcap? No, it's always in Duncan's tomb floating in the, um, the cemetery under Thorbar. And I can't for the life of me remember. It's not the Hall of Thanes. It's something else. But, um, well, maybe it is the Hall of Thanes. But uh, no, they find the helm of Gralin in the Skullcap, and that leads them to the entrance of Thorbarden in the South Gate, which is weird, and then that's how they sort of get in the the kingdom, because everyone's like, whoa, where'd you get this? And, you know, what's what's up with the helmet and stuff? So, I don't know. It, it's a weird sort of MacGuffin, the whole hammer situation at all, because even though they did find it, it never leaves, and it's one of the two required artifacts to create the true dragon lances. <laughs> so... Like, it, it, it makes zero sense. First of all, the hammer didn't exist before um, uh, uh, Kara's, like, wielded it. I, I don't think he was gifted it by the gods or reorks or anything. I think, I think it was, fashion, like, created for him. And so the hammer of Kara's is, like, this magical symbol for Thorbarden and for the king of Thorbarden, even though the king never actually wielded it. But then if it's required for the dragon lances, how did Huma have true dragon lances? You know what I mean? So there's a whole bunch of like weird wish-washy logic and lore that Dragonlance has always just sort of like, eh, just move along, don't ask questions. <laughs> Dealt with? Or we'll explain it later, just don't worry about it right now. And they just never get around to explaining it. And other people write about it later on and completely confuse the whole story. I mean, what do you want? You know, a, a setting that has over 200 novels you're going to have, and so many different authors, you're going to have a bunch of confusion in it. And I don't know, um, Katarina, I, I see your point because it, they're not professionally written. I would argue that none of the Dragonlance novels, not even Margot Wise and Trace Hickman, were professionally written because they weren't qualified to write them in the first place. They're not technically authors. You know, they had authored modules and they had edited novels, but they're not like you know, when they started, they weren't like renowned fantasy authors. And so this was really like them cutting their teeth. And so they just sort of rolled with it and they got a little bit better and they got a little bit better. I'd still think they're not as good as your general fantasy authors nowadays, like George R. R. Martin, for example. Um, but again, that's taste. Everyone has different perspectives. Um, as far as like the quality of writing, they should be intended to be professionally written. Even if you're not a professional writing it, you should do your best to make it 
as professional as possible. And I think that's the, the biggest problem when it comes to reflecting back on Dragonlance, at least, at least for me, it's the biggest problem, is that you realize that when you're a kid reading these, you're like, oh, these, were, these are fun. These are great novels. And as an adult with a critical eye, you're like, that doesn't make any damn sense. Why did that happen? Why did they make that choice? It was never explained. How come this convenient situation was contrived and yet it's never paid off anywhere else in any other story? There's just a lot of those types of questions because it doesn't seem like there was ever like a, a, a locked down story group that said, whoa, you can't write about that in this because that happens here over there in other places. So you have to figure a different weapon or find a different MacGuffin or find a different rationale. And that's never really done. And it's kind of frustrating. So when we're young, we don't notice. Yeah, you're right. I'd never noticed anything about this stuff when I was a kid. But okay, so there are some thoughts here that were sent to me. So this book benefited from rereading as an adult more than any other so far. Um, so this, these, some of these thoughts are sent by Chris and, um, he had noted that when he was young, he didn't like the political stuff and he only liked the Heroes of Lance inclusion in this book. And as an adult, he actually learned to really appreciate the political side of it. And I, I'm sort of the same way. I, I remember reading the end of this and going like, oh, I have read this as a kid. I remember this part very vividly, but I didn't remember all of it. And so I probably did enjoy it. I just, it just didn't really, I don't know. It didn't, it didn't have sticking power in my mind, you know? So the next note was that it was nice to read a book that agreed with previous canon <laughs> with one notable exception is Verminard. It's not the only notable exception, as I mentioned with, uh, with the hammer and with the heroes looking for the hammer and, and stuff like that. But again, this is a, a mix of the novels and the modules. And as someone who played Advanced Dungeons and Dragons a lot as a young man, well, as a kid, I really appreciate that they did actually care. Because I'm going to be honest with you, the modules are infinitely better than the novels. There are so many twists and turns that happen in the modules that are never addressed in the novels because they didn't want to spoil them. Because we got to remember, the whole point of the Dragonlance Chronicles trilogy was to sell game products. That was it. The only reason, it was a brand new setting. They needed to like allure people to buy these modules. And so they wrote a novel. It did so well, they wrote more novels. But that was the only reason they wrote those novels. It wasn't because they wanted to tell a good Dragonlance story. There was no such thing. It was just the modules. So, you know, it's literally a selling device for people to buy Advanced Sons Dragons books and buy Dragonlance modules. And so I like the inclusion of that. Uh, the tone of this book was what he preferred and reminiscent of the other Dragonlance books in the era. This, yeah, his point being this is a war-torn era and it is reflected in the people who live it. And we got a lot of that with the refugees of Pax Tharkaz. We had a young girl who just had this really great moment with Geese. Um, I don't think I'm saying his name right. Nice, G-N-E-I-S-S, -S, who... Uh, basically was looking for the his his thane and he couldn't find her he just saw this young girl and he was started asking her questions and stuff and she's like well i don't have a mommy anymore she was killed michikal took her according to goldmoon but you can find them over here so it's just this very clear reference that there are orphans because of this war verminard is actively burning towns the main protagonist of this um in kalita she 
constantly is talking about how her family was burned alive by Verminard's dragons. Like, that is the world that Dragonlance is, that I was introduced to. There were genuine consequences. People die in this novel a lot. Like, a lot of people die in this novel. You don't get that with other modules and, uh, and like, modern Dragonlance or modern uh, fiction. Or even later, in the late 90s, early 2000s Dragonlance, it, it wasn't as raw as it was early on. I prefer that there are dire consequences to your actions. I prefer that it is a difficult, lived-in universe that people are scarred and traumatized and filled with pain because that's what it's supposed to be. It's not supposed to be this, like everyone holding hands and skipping around being happy. That's not Kryn. It's never been that. But that's the way it is now in, in 5th edition, which is a little annoying to me, clearly. All right, so... um. Let's see. Piper being trapped in the magic flute after his death is a cool but terrifying concept. Yeah, I guess. I mean, he cast the spell to be summoned back because he thought his friend was going to do it and he was going to then help his friend after death get the sword back to his thane because he was a dear friend of Hammerfell. So I, I, I didn't think it was a strange thing. It was a choice that that character made. And I thought the character had a great backstory too. So it really sold the whole situation with the flute and his soul being connected to it. And then, of course, he goes on to talk about the plight of the Paxark as refugees and stuff. I really, I, I thought that the writing between Tanisaf Elven, Goldmoon, and the Hylar Thane was off because it wasn't Margaret Weiss and Tracy Hickman writing those characters that they created and they wrote, and so that's the voice that I'm used to hearing. It felt off to me, especially when it got to like Sturm and Karaman, who just have a brief cameo in this. But I would rather them be included because they were there at that time for quite some time. And it, you know, sort of offhanded mentions Flint Fireforge and how uh, uh, Nice was happy that he didn't have to see Flint because he's in, you know, a hill dwarf, a Nidar hill dwarf, and they made war with. <laughs> you know, with the dwarves in the Dwarfgate War of Thorbarden. And so I really like that there's still that sort of, even though you're a dwarf, there is that sub-racial animosity that remains even 300 years later, or, you know, 150 years later, whatever it was. Long-lived dwarves, long-lived memories. So I, I dug that a lot. Um, hey, Sao Paulo, Brazil. How you doing, Cozen? I'm not even going to try to do the rest of the name. Sorry, man. I'll butcher it. No, No offense. Uh, even with all the flaws in the Dragonlance books, they're still your favorite. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm, I have a channel devoted to it, so I definitely feel where you're coming from. I love this stuff, even though yeah, <laughs> they're not all good. Uh, most of them aren't good, to be fair. There are a few of them. Hey, Rodney, thanks for tuning in. Yeah, I love this book, too. It was, it was a lot of fun. Flawed, but good. Hey, Don, how you doing? Thanks for tuning in live. The original cover looks familiar. Yeah, I mean, it's a great classic painting, you know. Um, yeah, most of us did when we were <laughs> really young and then we don't remember it because, you know, we were super young and we've read billions of books since then and we've had lives and, you know, now we're older. Um, so I appreciate that for sure. But, um, yeah, that's kind of it. That's all I had for this. Um, all in all, I highly recommend it cause it's a fun story. It's better than, in my opinion, Galen Benighted. It's on par with Weasel's Luck 
if you, it's just the style of writing you have to appreciate because every author has their own voice and how they communicate the story, how they structure the narrative, how they set up character development and story arcs. And if you're not really in line with their voice, then you're not going to enjoy it as much, even if you do love the setting and you love the characters. Just the way the story told will not resonate with you as much. So for me, I really appreciated Weasel's Luck. I really appreciated Stormblade. Not so much Galen Benighted. And, you know, my feelings on um, the Hammer of... I'm sorry, um, The Legend of Huma and Kaz the Minotaur are... They're good, they're enjoyable, but I'm not a huge fan of Richard Knack's writing style. He, he has some sort of tricks, narrative tricks that he relies on a lot that I'm just not a fan of. Um, and so, you know, these, these Heroes trilogies are a little, Heroes 1 and 2 trilogies are a little sort of hit and miss for me, you know. But it's still Dragonlance. I'm still going to read them, and I'm still going to enjoy them, even if I don't like every tiny aspect of them. But that's my thought. Thank you guys so much for sharing yours. Uh, I would like to take a moment. Well, here, hold on. Let me back up a little bit. That is it for my review of Stormblade by Nancy Varian Berberic. What do you think about Verminard being alive in the novel? Did it confuse you when you first read it if you didn't know about the modules? And finally, did these heroes ever find the Hammer of Keras? You can email me at info@dlsaga.com or leave a comment below. I would like to take a moment and remind you to subscribe to this YouTube channel, ring the bell to get notified about upcoming videos, and click the like button. This all goes to help other Dragonlance fans learn about this channel and its content. And this channel is all about celebrating the wonderful world of the Dragonlance saga, and I hope you join in the celebration. Thank you for joining. <laughs> Thanks for watching, anyway. Uh, my name is Adam with Dragonlance Saga, and until next time, Slanjavar.